thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have sent him into the world to be the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. We thank you, Lord, that he was raised again from the dead, that he might provide us with new life in you and hope and faith. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to speak to us today, that your spirit would deliver your son, Jesus Christ, to us today over and over, that we might have the assurance and the confirmation that we are indeed your children, purchased and won by your son, called yours and adopted by you in the waters of baptism. And as you continue to speak to us this day and telling us that we are forgiven for your son's sake, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So raise your hand this morning if you woke up and you were super excited because today was Transfiguration Sunday. Anyone, anyone, anyone? Did anyone wake up even knowing it was Transfiguration Sunday? Probably not, but don't feel bad because I've never been excited about it before either. But I've always been a little bit slow. And so what I want to talk about today is actually the great blessing and gift that the transfiguration is to you and I in our daily walk with the Lord. I've seen it in a way that maybe I haven't paused long enough to see it before. And today's message really, on the one hand, seems to be geared or more suitable for those who are in junior high or high school or maybe beginning their college life and taking classes at the university. But that being said, all the rest of us that are in here, we have a relationship with these junior high people, high school, college people, whether there are children, maybe there are grandchildren. And so it really becomes a message that is important for all of us. And so I want to talk for a moment about the world because the world, as you hear it talked about in here, is opposed to the things of God in Christ. And the world is maybe a faceless enemy to you and I, so I want to begin to paint a little bit of a picture to help you understand what I mean when I say the world. The world has philosophies and thinking and advice and counsel that is not rooted in the Word of God and the person of Christ. And that wisdom and that philosophy and that counsel and that advice is always in the end contrary to God's plan and way for your life. The world is indeed an enemy of our faith. The world would like to tell you that this is what it means when you receive the gift of faith. The world says when you receive the gift of faith, you are in effect blindfolded. In other words, you can't see things as they really are. The world says in faith, you are in the dark as it relates to moral shifts in societies and the contemporary issues that we face today. To be in faith in Christ, the world says, is to really kind of be outdated and out of touch with the way things are in the world. But it says even more than that. When the world says to receive faith and to live in faith as you and I do, 
and to say that we are blinded. It's really to say this. What you believe and what you hold on to isn't factual. It's a cleverly devised myth that your parents have passed on to you, your grandparents to them, and you have just grown up believing this to be true. And the world wants you to believe that this faith and trust in Christ Jesus is really the same thing as saying, well, my favorite color is blue, yours is red. We can really have whatever favorite color we want. And it tries to put this faith in Christ in the same category as that, to which it's not. So the world says your faith makes you blind, leaves you in the dark, makes you narrow-minded and judgmental. Now, what Christ says is kind of interesting. Christ says, apart from me and outside of me, you actually remain in a kingdom of darkness. Christ says that you and I are born spiritually blind and dead. In other words, he says, without him, we are blind and we are in darkness. But in him, scriptures say, we are transferred from a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light, and we have been given the gift of sight to see things as they really are, as the Creator made them to be and called them to be. Completely opposite of what the world says. And Peter gives us a great gift. Our reading is 2 Peter chapter 1, if you want to go there, verses 16 to 21. And here's the gift. Peter is recounting an, an instance and an experience from his life and ministry and from the life and ministry of Jesus that took place 30 to 33 years prior to his talking about it right now. So he is recalling a historical event in this section to those that he is shepherding. And so my prayer today is that the Spirit would use this message to do for you what, parent, what Peter, through this message, did for his people. And this is what Peter says. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths when we make known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And in the Matthew account, it goes on to say, Listen to him. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's the second coming. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter aims to tell his people, what I aim to tell you today, 
is that when we talk about Jesus Christ crucified for you, Jesus Christ risen for you, it is not some myth that has been passed down to us. It's not just some story that we were hooked with when we were young, and now we still believe it, though it isn't true. Peter knew people were coming into the lives of his hearers as they come into your lives with all these clever stories and other religions and other ways that things have happened, and they're trying to win over the people that Peter is shepherding and you, the people of OSL. And Peter is saying this, when we told you about Jesus Christ and his work on your behalf, it is rooted on facts. I, Peter, an apostle of the Lord, am an eyewitness. It was the Lord Jesus who invited me, James, and John up on that sacred mountain so that we with our own eyes could see the Lord's body glorified, that we could see Moses, and we could see Elijah, and we could see all the scriptures that had preceded us written and spoken by men who had long died before our own birth, yet their word was confirmed on this mountain. And not only was their word made certain, but God the Father spoke, and we audibly heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son. In Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Peter, James, and John received a confirmation that Jesus was indeed who he said he was. He was indeed the Father's Son. He was indeed the Son of Man and the Son of God. And Jesus says to them, now don't say anything about what you have seen until after the resurrection. And Peter writes and speaks 30-some years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to let his people know, I saw this with my own eyes. Not only that, I saw the Lord Jesus Christ crucified. I saw them take his body from the cross and put it in a tomb and put a stone over the tomb. I also saw with my own eyes, along with 500-plus other witnesses, I saw the Lord Jesus, who was dead, raised to life. I am a witness to this. I don't have to impress you with my speech, with winsome words, and a great delivery. I saw it. It is a fact. And this is what our faith rests on. This faith is indeed not blind. And when you think about the scriptures and the stories that have been recorded in the scriptures, you just see over and over and over God confirming who he is and his promises to you. Think about Martha, for example, at the death of her brother Lazarus. And she's sad as most would be sad, and she says to Jesus, I know he will be resurrected in the end. That is, in the end day, I know he will be resurrected at the last day. And that's a true confession. Martha made a truthful statement, but Jesus confirms that future hope right then by raising Lazarus from the dead. Now Martha knows that this truthful confession she made is certainly 
true because she saw Jesus demonstrate by his own power what it looked like to raise someone from the dead. God confirms himself to us over and over again. And we think of confirmation as just this phase for fifth to eighth graders. When really what's happened in confirmation is the promises of God, the word of God is being buried deep in them and God is going to call it out of them the rest of their lives. They are going to see that what the Lord has said and what the Lord has promised is true. And that their faith rests on facts and historical events, not just some story fairy tale that they heard in Sunday school. Now as we think about this, I'll share from my own personal life one moment that occurred for me when I was a freshman in college and I was uh, in the depths of my first philosophy 101 class. When I'm learning the great thinkers like Descartes, Hume, right, all of these kinds of wonderful guys that I learned about, Socrates, Plato, all of these neat, neat names. And philosophy, you might know, means lover of what? Wisdom. And I got sucked in completely into this, and I loved all this new thinking. I was thinking in ways that I had never thought before. I was being challenged to make a defense for my faith that I'd never been challenged to make before. And I can tell you this, when that moment came, I wasn't ready. I couldn't recall the Testament and the stories from the Scripture that said, this is true, it is happened. It has happened, and it's been affirmed by witnesses. And I'll tell you this, in this philosophy class, I went through probably two days of being the best atheist I could be. I thought, I'm rejecting this faith of my childhood. Yeah, I, I understand what they're saying. I was just always brought up with this. I could never have thought any different than what my parents made me think by bringing me to church. And I thought, I'm going to think for myself like the great thinkers of the day and the philosophers of the day, and I'm going to step outside of the faith and be bold enough because I know enough now to be a man in the world without God. And I can tell you, ironically, that those two days were, as I would describe it, very, very dark. Lonely. I was overwhelmed with a sense of what's all this for? What am I even alive for? What do I have to accomplish? What is there to do in this world? What significance is there if everything just ends when I take my last breath? And I was led to a place that many are led to. Then you might as well just live however it is that you want. Enjoy whatever it is that you want. Although it was only two days, so I didn't get to do as much as I probably would have wanted. <laughs> and then I made this kind of unfair test. I said, Lord, I'm pretty disturbed. I'm praying. I'm, an, I'm a praying atheist, okay? I'm going to meet with my pastor and speak with him and talk with him about where I am or where I am not now spiritually. And this is the test. And I said, my pastor is going to have to use all the same terms that were used in my philosophy class that drove me away from the faith. Now, 
The only thing about this test is, is I didn't tell my pastor that's the standard I was holding him to. And I'm sitting in his office across from his desk, and he begins with a word epistemological. And I'm like, huh, that's one of the words. Then he talks about ontological, teleological, all these philosophical, he even drops Hume's name. He even talks about Descartes. He even knew cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. He knew all of these things and used all of these things to convince me that Christ crucified for sinners and for me rests on a fact not a fable, but it was true, and that I wasn't the world's biggest moron for believing it to be true. It was indeed a fact, and the Lord indeed confirmed it in my life, and the Lord indeed in your life and mine continues to confirm His words and promises each and every day of our life. And if you ever feel like He's not, then you come to this table where you hear the confirmation, take and eat, this is my body, this is my blood, given for you, that you might know that you're forgiven and you're adopted and you're in me and eternity is your home. If you don't feel the confirmation, then go to the word where God continues to confirm himself in your life and mine. Because, brothers and sisters, if you look at the life of Peter and you think about that, Good Friday, Peter didn't have a faith really rooted in fact. On Good Friday, what does Peter do? He denies Jesus, says, I don't know him, all these sorts of things. He's scared of young ladies who are asking him questions about his association with Jesus. He's afraid because he's not positive who this is. But after the resurrection, after Peter sees with his own eyes as an eyewitness that this Lord Jesus Christ of his is resurrected from the dead, after this, he will willingly be martyred for his faith and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, Peter doesn't go to his own death. He's not crucified upside down because he believes on a fable. Peter willingly goes to his own death because he knows the facts and he has seen it with his own eyes and he has passed it on to you and to me, and the transfiguration is one of many confirmations that Peter receives, and it's a confirmation for you and I, 1940 or 50 some years later, it's a confirmation to you that this Lord Jesus is indeed the one who has come to save you. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, sometimes we are often led astray by our own love of knowledge and our own desire to prove and see everything that uh, we see in the Scriptures. But Lord, we thank you that you have designed your word in such a way that it was passed down through the ages by faithful witnesses and that there have been historical accounts and documentations and places. Lord, there are other big religions in the world like the Book of Mormon given to Joseph Smith. Lord, there were no witnesses to this. Yet they seek to anchor their story in some part of your story in the Scriptures. Like the book of the Quran, Lord, there were no witnesses 
as this word was given, and they too seek to try to anchor their story in your word. Lord, we have the word of the scriptures, attested by the apostles, attested by your very own Son, who died and rose again so that we might have life in you. Lord, remind us and give us that great confidence that the gospel provides, that you are indeed factually our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.